You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. In order for a business to survive and thrive, they need to build in corporate defense and corporate resilience and digital operational resilience. And that's where we're seeing the shift. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's privacy surveillance law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. Today, Ben has an update on the Pegasus spyware story. I ponder the underlying policy issues in the recent controversy at Spotify. And later in the show, my conversation with Dr. Roche Nehoma. She is head of cyber governance for Red Sift on the changing landscape when it comes to governance and how organizations are approaching cyber. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. And now a word from our sponsor, Six Cents. Six Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Six Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals, confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. All right, Ben, let's jump into our stories this week. Uh, You are uh, kicking things off with the continuing saga of NSO Group and their Pegasus spyware. Yes, we've we've certainly been here before. We've talked about NSO and Pegasus uh, several times in the past, I think. Uh, Now we have a new New York Times Magazine investigation, which reveals a couple of critical pieces of new information. The first that's of interest to people uh, here in the United States is that the FBI sought to purchase Pegasus software to use for domestic surveillance in the United States. Uh, Mm -hmm. We were certainly not uh, aware that that was the case. This was all happening behind closed doors. And uh, the FBI abandoned uh, the plan to purchase this, this spyware in the middle of 2021. So that was some sort of policy decision made within the Department of Justice. We don't really have the full details uh, as to what went into it, um, but certainly the fact that this uh, company and the spyware has become politically controversial uh, had something to do with it. Yeah. Uh, the other— well, and, and the, I'm sorry, but the, um, the NSO group folks were sort of famously crowing that their software couldn't be used for American— uh, phone numbers and and so on and so forth. They they, they were claiming that uh, that that was a condition that the Israeli government had placed on them, right? Right. Um, you know, I think their belief was that, or the FBI's belief was that, once the technology exists, you can figure out how to deploy it here and use it as mm. a domestic surveillance tool. Certainly, because it offers a lot of promise. I mean, we have criminals in this country, and this is the FBI's perspective, not necessarily mine, uh, who are going dark. 
And we need to have the best tools to try and infiltrate their conversations, whether that's about drug cartels or organized crime or anything like that. And it certainly has been used with great success in other countries for legitimate law enforcement operations. This is how we found the notorious El Chapo uh, in in Mexico, who was Mm. um, one of the drug cartel runners uh, there, perhaps the most famous. So it's solved a lot of domestic security incidents uh, across the world. So that's one really interesting element of it. It It's interesting that the FBI was engaged in trying to purchase this software for domestic surveillance, um, particularly because we've seen how this software has been abused in authoritarian countries where it's been used to spy on dissidents, journalists, uh, etc. The other really interesting element here is that this has become a tool of diplomacy for the Israeli government. So this is an Israeli company. They're based just outside Tel Aviv. And Israel has been kind of offering this uh, spyware as a carrot in some of its major diplomatic negotiations, including the Abraham Accords in 2020, where they had these breakthrough uh, diplomatic agreements with countries in the Arab world saying, hey, as part of this deal, have this awesome spyware uh, that this, this company developed. Um, and let's just say that you know the countries that have used the, the, that technology haven't always done so um, for the uh, most, uh, for, for, on the up and up, let's say. Um, yeah. They've used it for rather nefarious uh, purposes. Hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, these are sort of the two elements of the story. We didn't know that this is something that the FBI was interested in. Uh, now we know that the FBI has rejected uh, the purchase of the software. We also know for the first time how Israel has really used this in their diplomatic efforts. It's it's a it's something to offer other countries in diplomatic uh, negotiations, despite the fact that you know we've we've seen it used across uh, you know across the globe for illicit. Uh, surveillance operations, including from some of our most uh, authoritarian governments. Uh, and the fact that, you know, as you alluded to, America has blacklisted NSO, um, you know, which NSO says that it, it's suffocating its, its services. It denies access to some of our American technology that it needs to run its operations. They mentioned Dell computers and Am- uh, Amazon cloud servers here. So it's just a, a really interesting development. This all comes from a New York Times Magazine investigation. So there's also the interesting element of uh, who leaked this information, uh, how did they obtain it, uh, and what was the motivation for the person who sent this to New York Times Magazine. So despite the FBI ultimately thinking better of it, um, had they gone down the path of using this, is this the type of thing that would normally be inbounds for an organization like the FBI? Are there civil liberties uh, concerns here? Oh, there certainly are civil liberties concerns. Uh, But our jurisprudence really isn't dependent at this point on the nature of the technology itself. And this is something we've talked about a million times. Um, If you have Fourth Amendment concerns, that all depends, you know, whether you have a, whether the government is exceeding its authority under the Fourth Amendment depends on whether a person has a reasonable expectation of privacy. Hmm. That defines what a Fourth Amendment search is. And then, of course, the search has to be reasonable. And generally, you know, in the absence of a warrant, a search can be reasonable if the security needs of the government outweigh the potential privacy concerns. Under that framework, I don't see any reason why, you know, if we were investigating 
uh, drug cartels, organized crime, you know, even, uh, you know, gang warfare in American cities, uh, that this technology could not have been justified under the Fourth Amendment. I think, um, you know, we've seen similar technology, even technology that can break encryption, that can overcome the desire of criminals to go dark. We've seen that be allowed under our Fourth Amendment jurisprudence just because there's no real technological red line. Uh, There's no Mm -hmm. piece of technology. That's just not the way our Fourth Amendment works at this point. Um, A lot of scholars want to move us in that direction where the amount of Fourth Amendment protection depends on the capabilities of the technology. And because this technology is able to, you know, at least potentially read communications that have been end-to-end encrypted, perhaps that should enhance, in the view of these scholars, the constitutional rights of uh, the users. Uh, But our jurisprudence hasn't reached that point yet. So even though there are significant civil liberties concerned, there's no, like, red switch where, you know, if this had been used in the country, that's per se illegal. Uh, I, I certainly could foresee a world in which it was used. We use our, you know, not just the FBI, but state law enforcement agencies use surveillance technology uh, with these types of capabilities all the time, uh, and mm-hmm. they do it legally. Is this the kind of thing that you would expect if it were put in use that uh, a warrant would be required? It Not necessarily. You know, I think if there was a legitimate law enforcement need and if courts determined that this didn't violate a reasonable expectation of privacy. The expectation mm. of privacy question gets a little complicated when we're talking about encrypted communications because people Mm -hmm. have an expectation that, you know, the government isn't going to be able to access those communications and courts haven't really figured out how to deal with that yet. Hmm. The the one thing you do not have a reasonable expectation of privacy in is the metadata. Uh, And we've seen, I think we talked about this in uh, a recent segment, even with, you know, applications like WhatsApp, the government doesn't need a warrant to access metadata. So even if the mm-hmm. communications themselves are encrypted, sometimes you can learn a lot just by, you know, who was messaging whom and at what time and, you know, what the duration was. Right. Uh, so even if this technology wasn't being employed to spy on the actual communications of its users, it could have been used to glean useful information on its users, and that could have been done warrantlessly. Yeah. All right. Well, interesting that the FBI thought better of it. Maybe, you know, the controversy, the fact that it's, uh, as you said, blacklisted by by the U.S. government, uh, maybe it was just a little too hot to handle. Yeah, maybe they listened to our podcast and, you know, <laughs> that proved to be a warning sign uh, at, at FBI headquarters in Washington, right. D.C. at the Hoover Building. And yeah, they, yeah, they thought better yeah. of it. Yeah, they just didn't want the scrutiny of, of the caveat podcast. I think that's uh, possible. I, a lot of people feel that way. You know, I will say it, it takes a lot because the brochure for Pegasus uh, that was given to American law enforcement agencies said that this technology can turn your target smartphone into an intelligence gold mine. That's hard to turn down. Mm-hmm. You know, that certainly would be enticing if I'm a law enforcement agent. So the fact that right. they did end up making this decision is in and of itself quite notable, I think. Yeah. All right. Well, we will have a link to that uh, story from the New York Times Magazine in the show notes. Uh, My story also comes uh, from the New York Times. This is an article written by Kevin Roos, although this uh, story has been covered extensively pretty much everywhere. Uh, I want to talk about uh, the hot water that Spotify finds itself in this week. 
uh, with their host Joe Rogan um, and the uh, the heat they've been taking from some of their other artists on the platform, people uh, calling for bans of the platform. Uh, sort of, I guess the backstory here is that uh, talk show host Joe Rogan, who's uh, extraordinarily popular on that platform, second most popular podcast next to Caveat in the whole country. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, what we couldn't do with his download numbers. I know. I know. <laughs> um, so you know, Spotify uh, gave him a large sum of money. Generally, you see it being reported as a uh, hundred million dollars to come to Spotify and be an exclusive. And they did this to really kick off their uh, podcasting uh, area of their platform uh, to to get a lot of press attention. Their to podcasting get most- vertical, if you will. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And 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 they had great success with that and continue to do so. Um, Joe Rogan is not without controversy. Some of the guests that he brings on his show uh, have all sorts of uh, interesting opinions and takes on all sorts of things uh, from COVID-19 to UFOs and and everything in between. Um, And so this specific case uh, sort of came to a head because uh, recording artist Neil Young, who uh, is a polio survivor, it turns out, uh, got his dander up over some of what he claims is misinformation that Joe Rogan has shared on his program. And Neil Young uh, has uh, pulled his library from Spotify. Uh, Joni Mitchell also pulled her library. Some other artists, some other podcasters are doing the same. Uh, in the past few days, there's been a, a bit of a movement of people on social media saying that they're canceling their Spotify accounts. Uh, perhaps most important to the powers that be at Spotify, their stock price took a major hit. It has since rebounded. Um, you know, I, I, I guess around all this, I, what I'm most interested for our conversation is uh, sort of the background policy on all of this. Of course, as always happens with these sorts of things, people are, are claiming uh, censorship. Uh, I'm going to go out on a limb and say we're going to claim this is not that. Yeah, right, <laughs> but, right. But, but I want to try to clarify what exactly is this and what is Spotify's obligations and responsibilities here when it comes to misinformation and the folks they host on their platform? It's it's a great question, and this is not unique to Spotify. Uh, we've seen this hundreds of different times with different pl- uh, platforms, whether it's Facebook or Twitter. You know, they express their company's values, which are, you know, fostering an environment of free speech, creative content, etc. Uh-huh. Then you get a user of that platform who posts Things that are, you know, defamatory, allegedly dangerous, you know, constitute misinformation. Then there's the inevitable backlash. Um, so maybe other prominent users of that platform say, we're going to leave this platform if, you know, you don't change your policies, if there isn't better content moderation. And then, you know, sometimes the companies themselves make the decision to uh, lock that person's account, uh, suspend their account, etc., then that person goes and, and complains that they've been canceled or, or whatever the terminology is. Mm-hmm. Um, so this certainly isn't unique. Uh, I think, you know, for our purposes, it's important to see what the relevant legal and, and policy issues are here. Mm. Let's first note that the government is, is not involved. So this isn't per se a First Amendment issue. Maybe it has to do with the spirit of the First Amendment, um, mm-hmm. But certainly the government is not compelling Spotify to take any particular action. Joe Rogan himself has not been censored by the government. He hasn't been threatened with arrests or fines by the FCC. He's free 
to say whatever he wants. You know, he has the type of listenership where if he decided I'm going to, you know, leave Spotify and the $100 million on the table and start my own podcasting network, a lot of people would go there. He'd make uh, a lot of money. He certainly has that option. Right. Uh, Really, this is just sort of the capitalistic system at work. Uh, You know, you have Joe Rogan, who has um, hundreds of thousands, millions uh, of listeners, has one of the most popular podcasts that's out there right now. And then you have pushback by people who are taking their music outside of Spotify's music platform. So if you're a fan of 1970s folk singers like I am, um, you know, uh, Neil Young and Joni Mitchell, maybe you're moving your services to iTunes. None of that, you know, involves any type of government action. It's it's all something that's being done within the, the private sector. Um, so this is certainly, this is not censorship, even though people might say, you know, it violates the spirit of the First Amendment because somebody is being punished uh, for expressing unpopular political opinions. Then the other interesting element uh, of this is, you know, in theory, could Spotify be liable for some of the content that Joe Rogan posts uh, on its platform? And that's Mm. a more difficult question. So let's say somebody decided to sue Joe Rogan, you know, seeking damages for the misinformation that he put out related to COVID-19, you know, family member uh, of somebody who didn't take the vaccine ended up, you know, having a a bad result and and sued Spotify. You know, generally, if they were just a neutral content platform, they would be protected under Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. Uh, But right, you know, here it's kind of unclear if they are just that neutral uh, platform, given the fact that they are paying Joe Rogan $100 million to have the podcast on their network. Yeah, uh, so that might cut against their, you know, the notion that they are this neutral platform. I still think they probably wouldn't be held liable, um, you know, given that the reach of Section Two Thirty as it exists right now is relatively broad. But it certainly presents an interesting question. I don't think they could simply hide, you know, the way Facebook has or the way Google has by saying, we, you know, we're we are ju- we're not the uh, publisher of this content. We are just the platform. Um, so those are the kind of the interesting elements of the story from my perspective. Yeah, I mean, it seems pretty clear to me that when you're, you're paying someone that kind of money to be exclusive to your platform, that you are you are now a publisher. And so I, I think I, what I've seen is criticism of Spotify because the statements they've put out have come at this from the point of view of that of a neutral platform. Which exactly. is understandable, but that's not what they are in this case, in my opinion, anyway. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, what they're so they released an extensive statement, you know, and it's the type of statement we've seen from basically all of these companies saying, uh, you know, we understand the concern about misinformation. We're going to provide our listeners a link to authoritative COVID information, but you know, we support free speech. We don't want to censor anybody who's on our platform. We are not the publisher. We're just allowing this content to be, you know, to be posted under the Spotify umbrella. Um, it, I, I don't think they can credibly make that claim since they are the ones paying a hundred million dollars for the exclusive rights to this podcast. I just don't think they can make that claim with a straight face. Uh, you know, now there are certainly arguments that they can make in 
you know, support of their decision to keep Joe Rogan on their platform, they might say, as a company, you know, it is not our position to espouse any values whatsoever. We're giving everybody, whether it's Joe Rogan or anybody else, um, the ability to post content, to put podcasts on the Spotify platform or, or to release music. Um, and that's never really the case because Spotify, Facebook, Twitter, they all have some type of content moderation. Um, so it all you know, gets down to this matter of degree. You can't post literally anything you want on Facebook. You can't post pornography on Facebook. You can't right. you know, post threats to injure yourself or somebody else on, on Facebook or on Twitter. So, you know, I, I think when these companies try and step back and say, we're not responsible for this, this content, we don't make content moderation decisions, they really do make content moderation decisions. So it's just a matter of, you know, what counts from their perspective as the type of content that they don't believe should be posted on their platform. And I think what Neil Young and Joni Mitchell and some of these other artists are saying is, we don't want to be associated with a platform that's going to that's going to be okay with posting, for example, you know, COVID misinformation. Yeah. Um, so so I, I I definitely think that's what's happening here. So let me ask you this: outside of the situation with Joe Rogan, um, is there a point where the government steps in when it comes to misinformation? And and let's use a, a, a you know medical misinformation as a as an example here, uh, how does that contend with the the First Amendment? If I if someone out there in grid prominence is putting something, putting information out there that is just wrong, somebody's saying, you know, hey, here's a cure for COVID nineteen. Inject yourself with bleach, and that is both wrong and dangerous. Um, at what point does the government stop relying on the free market to? Uh, keep something like that from spreading around? Or is it because of our First Amendment, is it fair game for someone to stand on the street corner or the broadcast network and and shout that to the world? Yeah. So besides, you know, there are constitu- – there you can ban false advertising in a way that's constitutional. Our government does that um, with some yep. of our consumer protection laws. But our First Amendment is incredibly broad. Um, our courts have said they want to protect the marketplace of ideas – there is no point and basically no level of misinformation out there where the government is going to step in and censor it, put some sort of prior restraint on it. Hmm. Some people think that's good. Some people think that's bad. I mean, we have probably the most robust set of uh, free speech rights of any Western democracy, and that's what makes our country unique. Uh, we protect good speech. We protect offensive speech for the most part. Uh, and we protect speech that might, you know, cause kinetic harm to people, that might cause people serious injury uh, and or death. But generally, the government has decided, let the marketplace of ideas take care of that speech. If somebody posts, you know, a quack cure for COVID, the hope is that, you know, you'll, within that marketplace of ideas, a more authoritative voice will come in and say, actually, this is BS. Um, here are eight you know, 100,000 doctors who've reviewed this evidence and says it's bunk and, you know, people have enough information to make their own informed decision. Does it always work that way? Absolutely not. <laughs> but mm. that's kind of the price we pay for having this extremely robust First Amendment, and that's not going to change. I mean, we have now, you know, hundreds of years worth of precedent saying the First Amendment is incredibly strong. 
Uh, it can, you know, there are some restrictions that can be placed on it in limited circumstances, something that would lead to imminent lawless action. Um, you know, some restrictions on uh, obscenities, you know, things yeah, what like about, that. Hey, what about hate speech? How does that bump up? I mean, because there are laws against hate speech, right? There aren't laws against hate speech necessarily. There are hate crimes laws. So if you commit a crime that's motivated by hate, uh, you know, for a particular demographic group, then that can affect, you know, what federal crime you're charged with. Um, I see. But hate speech itself is constitutionally protected as long as it doesn't lead to other lawless action. Okay. Um, So, yeah, our First Amendment, it's big, it's bold, it's powerful. And, you know, that's that's kind of the situation we live in. And I think within that system, it makes it incumbent. It's kind of all of our responsibility uh, as consumers of media uh, to make sure that the truth comes out one way or another. Because the government isn't going to stop in and solve this problem for us. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, we have to go out in large numbers and say, um, you know, this is the information that's truth. This is the information that's that consists of falsehood, uh, falsehoods. And, uh, you know, you have to confront misinformation with correct information. Um, yeah. That's just the nature of our system. All right. Well, we will have a link to that story in the show notes. And of course, we would love to hear from you. If you have a story you would like us to cover or a question for me or for Ben, probably a question for Ben, you can send us email. It's caveat at thecyberwire.com. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Ben, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Rosh Nehoma. Uh, she is head of cyber governance for an organization called Redshift, a cybersecurity uh, providing company. Uh, and our conversation centers on the changing landscape when it comes to governance and how organizations are approaching cyber. Really interesting conversation. Here is Dr. Rosh Nehoma. I think what it is, is that corporations have been built and have grown on a philosophy of value creation and value generation. And that is that has loads of merit. Of course, businesses are in the business of making money and all of that makes sense. But we are seeing this paradigmatic shift in how businesses need to defend themselves. So I think that the value preservation imperative which is being talked about at very high level, is now becoming part of a conversation. So whereas before you would have had 
um, hyper-specialization. You would have your information security people. You would have your technical experts. But now business people with MBAs, lawyers, they all have to understand that actually in order for a business to survive and thrive, they need to build in corporate defense and corporate resilience and digital operational resilience. And that's where we're seeing the shift, I think. And that's what underpins everything that we're going to see and and probably talk about for the next few minutes. Are boards shifting the um, specific expertise that they're looking for from board members themselves? Are they looking for folks who have knowledge in, in the cyber realm? So I think two things are happening. Yes, that's number one. So they're looking for people who can bridge the gap between the technical and the compliance or the technical and the governance. That's number one. And the second thing that we're seeing, and it's partly because of new regulation that's coming in, is that boards themselves are raising their own awareness level so that they can have meaningful conversations about products that they're seeing in the market about solutions that are imperative for them to be able to have a you know robust cybersecurity posture. So yeah, so I would say it's two things. One, they are bringing in the experts and two, raising that level. And so I've seen this, the first time I have seen this is in the Digital Operational Resilience Act. So that applies to financial entities, um, which is the, the the scope of that is quite wide. It's banks, it's insurance companies, it's rating agencies, it's audit companies. So, you know, KPMG, PwC, all of those guys need to comply. Uh, reinsurance company, broker firms, investment companies, you know, if it creates, manages, transfers money or cryptocurrency, you know, any of these applies to all of those. It also crucially applies to ICT third party suppliers. So if you if any business is supplying software, cloud services, anything like that, they will also need to comply. Now what's interesting in this is that contained in this new piece of law, which will come in sometime in 2022, they are requiring boards to fully understand. So the boards won't be able to shift responsibility. They won't be able to say, ah, yes, but we outsourced this or no. The buck firmly stops with the board under this piece of legislation and it requires the boards uh, to participate meaningfully in these discussions. And in order for them to do that, it specifically calls out executive training for the board. So yeah, so two things. Hmm. Interesting. Does this have boards you know, taking a, a, a new look at the, like their errors and omission policies, you know, to protect themselves? I mean, I mean that, this, that is a great starting point for um, for boards who are making this calculation. It seems to me at the moment that it's the largest financial. It's the usual, you know, the guys with the deepest pockets are making the first moves um, because they can. Um, so. I imagine a lot of the learnings then from that will then be filtered down um, to like, you know, to the smaller firms. But yeah, that, that's a good starting point. And assessing assessing the knowledge of the board at the moment, right? Because you're going to have technical people who won't need to understand the, the corporate impact, you know, so much. 
I mean, it's kind of the evolution of where we were going. This isn't to say that 10 years ago that there was a misstep. And it's not to say that 10 years ago errors were made. Of course, we could always have done better, but we do that. We That's the assessment we make with 2020 hindsight. I think it's the natural evolution of, of where we're going and it's the sort of the organic growth. And what I mean by that is, if you look back 10 years ago, we had uh, limited data on what it meant for firms. But there was a really interesting report published by ENISA, the European Union Cybersecurity Agency, uh, at the end of October. And they identified some prime threats. Now, what was really interesting, if you looked at the prime threats that they published in October 21, it's the same threats that they've been publishing every year since they started publishing the prime threats. The only thing that has changed is the names. So we used to call malware malicious code. You remember Trojans? So they referred Mm. to, yeah, right? So they referred to Trojans and ransomware has been a big problem for years, but they were referring to it as rogueware or scareware, right? Mm. So the names have changed, but the prime threats have remained the same. So... I suppose my point is, is 10 years ago, a director looking at this didn't have 10 years worth of data. That's number one. Now we do. So when we know better, we do better. And also what's really interesting is that the courts don't expect you to see around corners, but they do expect you to read the writing on the wall. And if that writing has been on the wall for 10 years, you really need to address those prime threats. You know, one thing we've seen is is that insurance companies have been making recalibrations on on the policies they're willing to offer, the prices that they're charging for them, and also I think the demands that they're making on the companies that they're insuring. They're, they're, it seems like there's a lot more scrutiny than there was in previous years. Uh, how is that affecting things as well? So this is a really, so one of the ways businesses would have managed risk previously is that they would have simply transferred it. Oh, for a hundred thousand pounds worth of policy, we're able to shift the, the, the liability and all of the responsibility. Insurance companies are reeling from ransomware. Essentially, they did the sums and they did them and, and they were badly wrong. Okay. I make the distinction between being uh, wrong and badly wrong like this. 50 and 50 does not equals 101. You're wrong. But, you know, you're within a margin of error that's comfortable. But 50 and 50 does not equals purple. You're badly wrong. You just don't understand what it is you're talking about. And I think that the insurance sector has been badly wrong about ransomware. And they're reeling and there are going to be a couple of companies in 2022 are going to go to the wall because of this poor assessment of the risk and what they were able to stomach and what they were able to deal with. To mitigate and manage this risk, now what we're seeing is insurance companies are requiring their clients to be a lot more robust. Here's is interesting. Cyber insurance companies or companies that offer cyber insurance are now turning away firms who bear all of the hallmarks of weak cyber governance. They're like, you're so weak, you're making yourself a target. And for us, we're not going to stomach that. And that is the equivalent of, you know, you don't leave your keys in your car when you go in for the night. 
you don't drive drunk, you wear your seatbelt. All of these things that we accept as basics in the real world, there are digital equivalents. So what insurance companies are asking or requiring of their clients now are minimums. So one of the things is multi-factor authentication, endpoint protection, DMARC protocol must be in place. And that's just, you know, like I mentioned earlier, that's just sort of the organic that is the, you know, we have enough data, we know these things um, mitigate risk. And actually that's interesting as well, because the ANISA threat report in their recommendations has many of the similar uh, requirements or recommendations. So what they're, what the ANISA report recommends is in line with what you would see with NIST. So it's no different. It's, it's no different to what you might see in the um, CMMC, the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification. And it's no different to, to what the insurance companies are requiring. So even if you, if you pick any one of these things, you're going to need to do multi-factor authentication, endpoint protection, DMARC, and so on and so forth. So it, there's, it's, it's kind of a no-brainer for um, businesses who are looking to, to manage the risk and, and to be able to access cyber insurance. Is there a, an equivalent of um, building codes for cyber? In other words, you know, I, I build a new building and the building codes require that I have a certain number of exits, that I have exit signs, that I have sprinklers, you know, those sorts of things, fire escapes, um, all those sorts of things. But that's different than my insurance company saying, offering me a carrot and saying, hey, uh, if you have a fire extinguisher uh, in your kitchen, we're going to give you a discount on your homeowner's insurance. You know, it's different different set of incentives there. Do, do we have those those government side mandates that are that are evolving as well? So yes and no, I'm sorry, but this is this mm-hmm. is the situation. So it's yes and no. So if we take, for example, Dora, um, I like the building analogy, but every building will have doors, right? Because how else are people going to come in and out? If it's more right. than one level, it will have stairs as well as a lift, because what are you going to do in the event of a fire? You just can't make that kind of a blanket statement for the types of hardware and software businesses will deploy. So it's not as simple as to say, look, every business needs to have this or it needs to have that. I mean, every business has email. So there are certain things that you could say, look, it's a really good idea to have this. But this is where um, to use the expression to address reasonably identifiable circumstances. I mean, that's beautiful because then that means... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Lawyers love uh, fuzzy terms like that, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I will say this in defense of lawyers, you know, um, because, you know, they're given to legal gook a lot of the time. And I find that kind of painful. Just that plain, very clear, as a business, all we need to do is address reasonably identifiable circumstances that will lead to, you know, malfunction and, and so disruption and so on. Okay, this is great because now you have a very clear thing that you need to do. You need to address reasonably identifiable circumstances. Okay, so now you ask, well, what is reasonably identifiable? Well, if you've got the FBI jumping up and down every year with the IC3 report saying these are the most significant threats to your business, that's not reasonably identifiable, Dave. 
That's easily identifiable. Jump all over that. Mm-hmm. Oh, and I would say this as well. So the FBI have a really good track record of warning about things. So I'm going to take you back to 2004, where one of the directors of the FBI was having press releases. He he was running press conferences like on a loop. And he was saying, look, the amount of mortgage fraud that we're seeing has the potential to become a pandemic. I think they're his words almost precisely. You know, before Mm -hmm. COVID, he used the word in 2004, it is a potential to become a pandemic. He understood the interconnectedness of the financial services sector, and he could see the problem that was on the horizon. That was in 2004. Lehman and Bear Stearns didn't collapse until 2008. The FBI got it right, and they got it right years in advance. If I was working for a corporate, the first thing I would be looking to is what are the FBI saying? They've got access to data that is otherwise unavailable to the private sector, and they have a good track record of getting things really right. So the first thing businesses should be doing is looking at the IC3 Internet Crime Report, and then they should be looking to see, well, what are the biggest threats? Business email compromise, the $26 billion scam, the FBI are tearing their hair out, warning businesses on a loop, this needs to be done. So you know what? Do that. It's reasonably identifiable. Okay, where else, what else is reasonably identifiable? Anything in the UK that the National Cybersecurity Centre pumps out. And you know what the good news here is? If the FBI are saying that they're seeing it on their side of the pond, the NCSC is saying that they're seeing it on this side of the pond. So now you have two credible agencies who are telling you the same thing. It might be more complex if those two agencies were saying, no, well, I'm seeing a lot of this. And they were the other side saying, well, I'm seeing a lot of that. You, you know, that introduces, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but that's not what is happening. So then you can then back it up. Well, is this something that NIST, the National Institute for Standards and Technology, is this something that they're recommending? Oh, yeah, right, they are. Then you've got the cybersecurity maturity model um, certification from the U.S. Department of Defense. Now, if you think I get excited about DORA, I think this is just, this is your tick box approach. This is your you know, your that building thing you were talking about, that checklist of do this, do this, do this. If the US Department of Defense has gathered all of the brains it has at its disposal and they've made the determination that in order for them to be robust, that they need to do certain things, it seems to me that companies, that's a life hack for companies. You don't need to do the same things. You know, you don't need to do all of the background research and make your own determination. Just copy the homework of the smartest kid in the class. Do that, you know. <laughs> Love it. To to what degree um, do you think that organizations who are able to successfully implement these things will that be a competitive advantage? And could we see for organizations that don't? Could it be a business killer? Oh, I mean, it is an existential threat. So. I'm going to answer your second bit first. It's an existential threat. This is what we've seen. We've seen businesses go to the wall six to 12 months after they have suffered a, you know, a significant breach. 
uh, smaller businesses tend not to be able to survive or recover. We also know that like 19, in the UK, 97% of businesses are small businesses. So, and that's what's sustaining the economy. Smaller businesses tend to hire more people proportionate to the money that they're bringing in. So they're the lifeblood of the economy. So everybody has skin in the game and that's really important. So yeah, it's an existential threat. As to your other point is, is this a unique selling point? You bet it is. So this is what I would say. If anybody is looking, if you have commercially sensitive information and you need to find a law firm, well, the first thing you should be doing is you should be making sure that that law firm is as robust as it reasonably can be. Because if your data breaches out, that means your competitor can see it. It means that, it, I mean, it, you, you, could be, you could be dead in the water if information about your business is out there. So yeah, this is, is I would see this if I was guiding a client to select a law firm, for example, I would say, well, you need to run a supply chain due diligence on that law firm and make sure, so far as they reasonably can be, that they have a robust cybersecurity posture. And I wouldn't take, I wouldn't touch anybody whose cybersecurity posture was weak. And and I and there there's no reason that that needs to happen. And then I would also look to this, I would ask the law firms, well, so the law firm itself is robust, but now what does your supply chain, what do you require of your supply chain? And this isn't new, by the way. Banks have been doing this for years. There's a lot of like large global banks who themselves are leaders. You know, this is the, the deep pockets. I'll give you one example. JP Morgan has a budget of around 600 million a year for cybersecurity, according to their, you know, their annual report. That's a material sum by any stretch of the imagination. But what you're seeing these large banks do is not only are they making themselves robust, but they're then mandating that anybody who supplies to them does certain things. This is where, you know, if you're following, like if you're looking to NIST or CMMC, or if you're looking to what's the prime threat with the FBI or the NCSE, you're going to be covered for all of those things anyway. Because where are these big banks getting their information from? Well, they're looking to these guys. Because the the, the worry for years, it, you, when you go to conferences, people talk about, you know, zero day vulnerability, or they want to know, yeah. what would that have stopped Stuxnet? And I'm like, why are you enriching uranium? Why, why do you want to know? Why, why do you want to know about something that's, you know, that's an outlier that's unlikely to happen. You need to be thinking about the thing, you know, the technically artless exploit that is being used by a daily basis, hand over fist by fancy bears and, you know, all of these government agencies. They're not deploying the tough stuff while you're allowing it, you know, while, while, while we're making it easy. Right, ben, what do you think? Just interesting that, you know, the role that cybersecurity is now playing within individual public and private organizations that it didn't play, you know, 10 to 15 years ago. 
I think right. once you have you know, all these cyber attacks, ransomware attacks in the public and private sectors, companies are now willing to invest in, you know, uh, CISOs. <laughs> if you're a small business and didn't have one in the past, now's the time to uh, go out there and, and find some talent. Um, yeah. I think that's just the nature of the threat. Once the threat becomes more real, and once companies in the private sector realize it affects their bottom line, and companies in the public sector realize, hey, our uh, Department of Health website uh, when it goes down for a month, that's you know going to really hurt our our citizens, as as mm-hmm. happened in Maryland. So yeah, yeah it's a it's an interesting conversation in that respect. Yeah, it's it's interesting how cyber is kind of continues to creep its way up the org chart. You know, <laughs> yes, sooner or later, cyber is going to take over everything. There's not going right. to be a CEO. The, the <laughs> cybersecurity right. professional is just going to be in charge. Right. Right. All right. Well, again, uh, our thanks to Dr. Rosh Nahoma for joining us. Uh, we do appreciate her taking the time. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and Zero Trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. The Caveat Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening. <laughs>